Welcome back to Unstuck, the podcast. I'm Jonathan, joined here with uh, Eddie and Danny. What's up, Ed? And uh, <laughs> this is episode three, our unfortunate end to this podcast on Slaughterhouse Five. But uh, we got a lot coming at you today. We got a short story by Vonnegut, um, a uh, an interview with an amazing guest, Mr. Baffo, and uh, a special review of the book. And uh, just a lot of fun today. So, welcome back. All right. Do you want to hear a word from our first sponsor before we get into our segment? Of course. All right. We got Pest Control Chicago, number one extermination company into the Chicagoland area. Got bugs? Call 773 466 9932. Pest Control Chicago, baby. So, uh, Let's jump into our segment on the short story. I don't know if it's two B R O two B or two bro two B. To B or not to B. Oh shoot! I didn't even. <laughs> I didn't even... <laughs> Dang. <laughs> okay. Wait, are you right. sure? Yeah, they say in the thing. They say the O is pronounces not. Oh. To B R not to B. Oh, I don't know. I just missed that. <laughs> all right. <laughs> well, let's jump in with the uh, death plays an interesting role as all disease is conquered and people volunteer. Similar to uh, pest control type thing. That's why we had yeah. that as our ad. So uh, what are you guys' thoughts on this? I mean, it's just a really interesting. This was an interesting story for sure. Um, and in a lot of ways, kind of, there were a couple of ways that it compared to uh, or related to uh, Slaughterhouse-Five. But um, the death, like, people were volunteering to die, which is definitely something that is, I'd say, unearthly. Something that we uh, definitely don't understand, you know? Yeah, and also, like, with the no aging aspect of that, it's similar to the Charles Famadorians, except for they can't go back in time, but they can keep, like... Living in, like, they keep living the same age, so, like, they can't go back in time, but they always have, like, to do whatever they want. They have to see whatever age they want, really. Yeah, so I feel like in that way it's similar, but it's different because they can't go back. They can only correct mistakes in the future, which is also different from the Trout Famidorians because, as they said, whatever whatever's going to happen is already going to happen, you know? Yeah. They have no change over their future. Yeah. So it's a very interesting, uh, I don't know, very interesting and similar similar aspect and similar thought as the Trafim Dorians, for sure. Seems like a pretty efficient way of population control. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, they talked about the size is much smaller than uh, what we have today. I think they said there's 40 million on the entire planet. Yeah, which is insane as opposed to, what are we, 7.4 7. billion or something? Like yeah, that. I don't know. how. I wonder, It makes me wonder how they spread that out. They, they, say, bil- they say billion or million? I think they said 40 million. Yeah, it was 40 million. Which is actually so crazy small to think about. Yeah, it's wild. Yeah, because there's seven point. Eight billion. On the I mean, earth. how many people live in Chicago? It's got to be three hundred thirty million. I think 
Is that right? Maybe, no, maybe like they damaged a lot of parts of the world with like the huge population, and now they can only live in like a certain spot. Yeah, so that that brings us into they talk about leaving this like leaving the planet they live on for space, and I feel like that's a like a common theme or thought like in our world right now like oh we can just trash this world and leave for Mars or something like that with issues with global warming and just stuff like that kind of people aren't really taking it as seriously as they maybe should. Yeah. And they just think they have a backup like Mars, even though yeah. Yeah, Elon we... was just talking about that today. He said um, people volunteering to travel to Mars are like they will most likely die. Yeah, he's like they, they know they're going to die. <laughs> I saw that, too. That was kind of funny. Similar to that suicide hotline. Yeah, that another... was weird, too. Good stuff. Yeah. stuff. I don't know why, but this short story was giving me some like Hunger Game type vibes. I don't yeah. know what it was about it, but like this dystopian, sort of dystopian, sort like semi utopian future. Yeah. No, definitely. Uh, it was it was a good pick, Eddie. Good pick. Yeah, I love the ending of that. Very shocking. Yeah, I I, I honestly thought for our viewers who have not read the short story, we'll give you a little. Uh, insight into it basically basically it ends oh i don't know (laughs) i don't know if i should say how it ends i feel like we we got it all right all right we'll let you know so basically in this story there's a never aging or dying population of 40 million and in order to keep control of the community you have to kill somebody somebody has to volunteer to die every time somebody is born and this husband is having triplets, and he wants a space for all three of his kids, but only one person has volunteered to die for them, and that was his own father, his grandpa, or the children's grandpa. Yeah. So uh, he takes matters into his own hands and kind of loses his mind and has a little shooting spree, killing <laughs> himself and two others. And then uh, this painter, who's kind of just like, witnessing it all decides that you know it's time for me to go as well and calls in his own suicide yeah it's weird how you can like call to get killed yeah Uh, once again i know i brought this up in an earlier episode but similar to futurama where they have these like suicide payphone booths that's what i was getting from it very futurama-esque book yeah yeah so uh, another thing I thought was interesting was a man named Hitz created the gas chambers to kill people. Sounds uh, a lot I, like Hitler. Yeah, and just makes me think maybe this is what a world might have been like if in the war. Just something yeah. to think about. Like super regulated, and like population control and stuff. Mm-hmm. Is, that what, is that what you're thinking? Yeah. Yeah, and just, like, the use of gas chambers as, like, a norm. Yeah. And, I don't know. Um, also, they there's no more wars, and I just wanted to bring this up. Like, that was also very similar to the Charles Famidorians, the idea of, like, oh, we're not going to, we're not going to kill. Like, they would have no reason for how, like, like, I wonder if they could die from a bullet, even. Yeah, they die from these gas chambers. So I wonder, like, what's like stopping them from having a war? No, definitely. 
Well, actually, they can die. Just to point out they can die from a bullet. Yeah, yeah, they can die from a bullet. They shoot themselves. I forgot about that. Well, I didn't forget, but I just overlooked it. Yeah, they still die. Yeah. I think they just, they don't have any, like, purpose for a war. Yeah. It's just senseless. Yeah, I think uh, with a short story of only, that's probably like four pages, maybe, max. It's hard to know the all the small details about what kind of country they live in or what purpose they have for a war. But assuming with no death, or yeah, with no death or disease, it's pretty minimal reason. Right. Especially yeah. when there's so little amount of people, no struggle for resources, I'm assuming. Yeah, definitely. But... Definitely a good short story. Check it out if you want to be or not to be. It's a uh, Vonnegut story and a pretty interesting one. All right. So before we hop into these hot takes with our special guest, I want to have another word from our sponsor, Little Caesars Pizza. They have that hot and ready pizza. You get a large classic for $5. It's great to bring home for the family and you can maybe get some. I know a lot of people are... uh, Big fan of the breadsticks. Jonathan, I personally heard you're a huge fan. Massive fan of those breadsticks. Love them. Yeah, so, hot and uh, ready, baby. Just like the hot takes. <laughs> yep, let's hop into that with our special guest. Uh, wrote a world-renowned master thesis. Uh, our very own teacher, Mr. Beffa. We're just doing like a hot takes kind of thing. So some of the hot takes that we saw in the book that like may be a little controversial. Okay. So uh, our first one was... This came from a quote from a playwriter in the book, and it said, it is, in fact, for an American to be poor. Uh, sorry, but it basically just says it's a crime in America to be poor, mm-hmm. and it's, like, disgraceful. Mm-hmm. I just want to know your opinions on that, or if you think that's true, and why. I, I think evidence would suggest that it is true. We tend to criminalize poverty. I mean, it's not literally against the law to be poor, but... There are so many of our laws that disproportionately affect the poor in this country. And as you know, you guys are doing like your semester long projects in your various groups. I mean, you know, some of those. Yeah. So, so yeah, Eddie, you have one that has an intersection with wealth. And you see that the evidence shows that when you're poor, it's not just one thing, it's a dozen things that. You know, for those of us who are not in poverty, we, we tend to not consider how much living in poverty compounds like every aspect of your life. It's not literally I just don't have money in my bank account or that I might have a tough time paying a bill, but it's it, it affects your health, mental health and the ability to get that care for that help because if you're living in poverty, you probably don't have health insurance because you probably don't have a job that provides it. And if you don't have a job that provides it, you certainly can't afford it out of your pocket. So it compounds that. If you're poor, you're more likely to have to turn to illegal activities to make ends meet because you're not just going to die. Or if you have kids that you need to feed, you're not just going to let them starve. So yes, maybe you're dealing drugs, whatever, in order to literally provide for your family. And those people then, when they are caught doing so, they get locked up situation doesn't improve and in fact probably gets much much worse when that person has to go to prison then it's you know do you own a car probably not if you're living rely on public transportation which is not always reliable and is not always necessarily convenient to get to like if you live 
on the far south side of Chicago, Chicago CTA trains end at 95th. If you live south of 95th Street, significantly south of 95th Street, how do you get to the red line? If you need to take the red line to get downtown, you, know, you probably have to take a bus because if you don't have a car, then you got to rely on the bus system, which also costs more money, which buses get delayed. You, you know, they, they sort of have a schedule, but they're not always on time. And, and so, like I said, if it's not one thing, it's a dozen things and all these things add up. And at the end of the day, those of us who are not poor, us to point at people who are poor and be like, well, that's all your personal choices. Yeah. Without considering all the compounding factors that lead to that stuff. So like with my semester project, just building out of that, we interviewed Lorenzo Baber, and he was a professor at Loyola, mm -hmm. and he talked a lot about like, well, there's like a lot of things that going in, that go into being poor, and like things that they don't get, and uh, one of his main things is like grocery stores. Like yep. we we tend to be like, oh, why don't you eat healthier? Why don't you do this? But it's not an option. They live where like their grocery store is a Dollar Tree or something. It's called a food desert. Yeah. And Chicago has plenty of them, and most major cities have them as well. And they also exist in rural communities, which you'd be surprised, too. You would think if you live near a farm, you'd be able to get fresh food, but not necessarily. But, yeah, Chicago has plenty of food deserts on the southeast and west sides. Uh, and that's, I believe, defined as not having a green grocer within a mile of where you live. Uh, and if you then wanted to travel farther than that to get to a Mariano's or a food for less or whatever. Again, if you're already living in poverty and you don't have your own car, now you got to take public transportation to get to the grocery store. But also, you know, all of us have seen our parents go grocery shopping or gone grocery shopping with them and stuff. All the bags that are involved, if you have a family, you can't bring all those bags on the bus. Yeah. How are you going to carry all that? First of all, you can't physically carry it to begin with, but also you just can't bring all that crap on a bus or on a train. So that compounds it. I mean, I drive for Lyft. I can't tell you how many people I pick up at grocery stores. They use Lyft for it now, which, you know, 10 years ago, Lyft didn't exist. So it was much more of a problem. Now people have Lyft, but Lyft ain't cheap. Uber's not cheap. So you're adding that now to your grocery bill. You know, it's, it's costing somebody $10, $15 more on what they're shopping for just to get to and from where they're shopping. And yeah, like, again, those of us who live in situations where a grocery store, we just take it for granted because we go to it whenever we need it. If we don't comprehend that there are millions of people in this world that don't have access to that in, in a very easy sense. And yes, the corner store down the street from them, you can get food there. You want to call it food, but it's not healthy. Yeah. So another thing that they're talking about with free meals seems to be a myth. Gotcha. And like in our second podcast, we kind of talked about that heavily and like how that seemed to be a direct shot at like the Catholic faith. And I don't know if you fully agreed with that. You made some comments on our podcast, like it wasn't like really a shot at Catholic faith. In other words, it was just like a statement. So how do you feel about the free uh, will and a myth? Yeah, I don't think Vonnegut is like calling out Catholicism or Christianity because also, I mean, free will, it's a, yes. it's a Christian concept above Catholic, and actually it's, it's a concept of other faiths as well. Um, I mean, Vonnegut wasn't agnostic. He called, you know, he, he was not a man of faith uh, by any means, but he was also not a guy who was like anti-religion by any means. He, he, I was literally just reading uh, one of his speeches a few minutes ago because I'm doing a, another interview with another group about one of his speeches. And he calls himself a Jesus or a Christ-worshiping agnostic. So, like, he doesn't necessarily believe in, like, the divinity 
of it all, but he thinks Christ is great, a great role model, and somebody we could, you know, all model ourselves as. Um, regarding the, the free will aspect, I, th I think Vonnegut looks at it more as if we had free will, why haven't we changed more things for the better, first of all? Um, also, though, inherent in it is this sort of conundrum. If human beings have free will, if you and I can do whatever we want, we can choose to do or not to do, does that not call into question inherently then the infallibility of God or God's, uh, depending on what your faith is? Because the, you take the Christian faith or the Judeo-Christian faith, because Jews would believe this as well, as would uh, Muslims with Allah, that God is all-knowing, all-powerful, and that, that doesn't just mean all-knowing and all-powerful right now, but past, future, every direction you could think of. God has a plan. God knows everything that's going to happen. Therefore, if it's already known by God, how can we choose? Yeah. And it, it's, that, it, it's that conundrum that gets presented, you know, that's been around for thousands of years in like philosophy courses. Like, can God create a rock so big that even he could not move it? There's no way to answer that question without answering in a way that says God is fallible. Because either he can't create the rock, therefore there's something he cannot do, or he can't move the rock, something he cannot do. Yeah. So those faiths all say that God can do anything. So if God knows everything that's going to happen, how do we have a choice? Yeah. And that's, Vonnegut kind of gets into that. But, and he's not trying to be like, ha ha, gotcha, where's your God now? It's more like, it's more like, is, is the concept of free will even important? Does it matter? Why, why are people hung up on it? You know, do what you need to do to help other people out and everything else will take care of itself. It's, it's Augustinian in a way. St. Augustine famously said, he's, he, he wrote, just love and then do whatever the hell you want. And there's, there's sort of that vibe to Vonnegut as well. And I don't know if Vonnegut ever read any Augustine. I think Vonnegut would like Augustine if he read Augustine. But, um, it's yeah it's like who cares about free will do what you're going to do do what you think is best in the situation you are in to the best of your abilities you're going to screw up sometimes because you're human and we're all we all make mistakes but just always try to be better and be better for other people and that then it doesn't matter if that's free will or not yeah i know you're talking you're just talking about the uh like uh if you do something it's gonna, if god knows it's going to happen then it's always going to happen it just reminded me about uh where one of the Trump Amadorians just, they blow up the earth or the entire universe mm -hmm. and they, they just let it happen mm -hmm. because it always happens. Mm -hmm. And I don't think free will plays, uh, like it can't play a part in like this world that they live in if the Trump Amadorians do exist. Well, and the, and the Trump Amadorians say the idea of free will, free will is a very earthling thing. Yeah, and I think that has to do with um, us not being able to live in all the moments like they're able to because we're very self-centered around like one moment. The immediacy. We are. We're human beings, we're, we're selfish as hell. We're an extremely selfish species. And Vonnegut might even say that Americans, above all, are even further selfish than the, than the rest of the world, but that, that we're preoccupied with the now. And free will is very much about the now because free will doesn't really have so much to do with your future because you're not thinking about the future. It's did you do it now or did you not? Yeah. And yeah, you know, the, the Tralfamadorians say that's a very earthling thing, this whole, this concept of free will that you're hung up on, which is also related to like, you know, the, the pooty wheat at the end of the novel and, and the, the birds just chirping after this massive disaster. 
which is Vonnegut trying to say, hey, all this philosophy you're hung up on and, and free will and, and war and politics and blah, 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 what does it get you at the end of the day? Nothing. You die. You're the same result. You're the same result, but in the animals, the animals have no concept of it. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. So they just, whether you save the world or you kill a bunch of people, the birds are still going to be chirping. They're still chirping. And the birds yeah. have no concept of it. And something like a Dresden or a, a Nagasaki and Hiroshima that were done for whatever reasons they were done for, what, what got accomplished? You know, the, the bird yeah. tweeting Pooty Wheat is the same bird that tweeted Pooty Wheat the day before and the month before and next year and a thousand <laughs> years from now. And they're still going to be tweeting Pooty Wheat at unchanged and while humans are worrying about free will and bombs and, and all this other stuff. Yeah. And then our last, like, big, like, take we got from this was, uh, there was a quote that said, red is for the blood of Americans who died gladly for their country. And I just thought that was, I don't know if I would say out of pocket, but that's coming from somebody who didn't die for their country because he's saying that. Sorry, but that's Howard W. Campbell, right? Yeah. Yeah, so he's a Nazi, an American-born Nazi, an American citizen Nazi. Um, although, like, what he's saying, though, is based off of, like, the colors of the American flag. That red yeah, he, is... he was talking about the red one. Yeah, I just, I don't know. I think it was more of the gladly for their country. I feel like that was, I don't know if anybody dies gladly. Right. And and Howard Campbell, in his speech to these soldiers trying to recruit them to the, the Nazi sympathy cause, um, he does what what is even done today by propagandists, which is what he is. He's a propagandist. Like, professionally, that's his job. Um, but even non-professional propagandists people whose job it isn't to be an official propagandist, but work in propaganda in other ways, to play on patriotism. Patriotism is, is pathos. It's one of the, the most common ways of appealing to pathos in any country, but in America especially. And this notion that all those who have gone before us, especially in wars, who gave their life for their country, and it's kind of Vonnegut like saying, okay, first of all, I served a damn war. Um, and I could have died, it didn't, I, he was wounded, he called it a negligible wound, but I mean, Vonnegut was at Dresden and he, you know, he was captured. He was a POW. He, he went through most of the stuff you could go through without literally dying. And he's kind of saying that's bogus. Like what this whole idea of dying for one's country. Also in the same war, World War II, General Patton who was considered one of the greatest generals of all time. You know, he said, nobody ever did anything dying for their country. He said, you did something by making the other dumb son of a bitch die for his yeah. in a war. At least. So even like General Patton said, like, I, dying for your country doesn't help us. We need to make them die for theirs if we're in a war. Um, and yeah, so it's and, and also that they gladly did so. No, highly doubtful. Like nobody who was yeah. getting shot or bombed in any from World War Two prior was enjoying that experience for the most part. And it was probably horrific and gruesome. And most of those people were young men probably, you know, between the ages of 18 and 23, screaming off of their mothers as they died. Yeah. It, it was horrific. And somebody like Howard W. Campbell, who hasn't had to go through that, who has probably lived a pretty privileged life because his background is one of actual kind of privilege. His parents were wealthy. He, he's just playing off the, this romantic ideal of America that Vonnegut is like, that ain't it. And even Edgar Derby then calls him out for it. And I think it's very like, uh, like the media like changes it a lot, especially like with movies and stuff, as we talked about in our first podcast. I mean, you see these movies and like 
that's we're not so a, glorified. That's not actually what happened. It was John Wayne. That's why Mario Harrison. You're going to do like John Wayne and Sinatra. You're going to you're going to make it romantic, and it's not. Yeah. Now, um, since then, some war films have tried to you know portray the horror and stuff, but there's also the there's still a school of film philosophy that says there's no way yeah, to make know. an anti-war novel that all or or war film that all war films are inherently celebrating war, no matter how negative you try to make the portrayal. But I don't know if it was this class or it might have been Asian's class, but we talked about like uh, a veteran was watching these war movies and was like, "There's war." Yeah. Like the closest one was Saving Private Ryan, I think. But even then, there was still like a bunch off about it. Yeah, my grandfather was in World War Two. He fought in the Asian theater, the European theater. But uh, I know my dad said because it was my dad's net, and he would say like when my dad was young and they'd watch John Wayne movies or whatever, my grandpa would always say, like, whenever somebody got shot, especially like in a John Wayne movie, it was like, ah, ah, and they would fall in, like, five stages and they'd have their last words and blah, blah, blah. My grandfather would be like, nobody dies like that. Because I've seen people get shot to death and it's nothing like that. First of all, it's shot, boom, you hit. Like, there's no, like, dramatic falling or anything like that. And then if you're still alive, you're not saying any famous last words. You're, again, you're screaming for your mother before you die. That's pretty much it. Yeah, and that just brings us into like a closing thing. Uh, he said it's okay to kill somebody as long as they have no connections. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if you think that's actually true in our society. Maybe not kill, but like screw over or something like. Yeah, but even kill. Um, we see it time and again that you know throughout American history that there's been plenty of deaths unjustified murders of people or state sanctioned killings so even executions whatever that are barely a blip on the american radar because nobody knew who these people were like nobody cared about who they were and it's only the famous people whether it's celebrities or people who commit these super major crimes that if they didn't have connections to somebody where there was like a debate over whether or not this person was being treated justifiably um, but yeah, I think history kind of proves that, you know, if you kill someone who's connected in any way, shape or form, that's going to be a problem for those who are doing the killing. And that's, again, whether it's a celebrity, whether it's now, this is, you know, Vonnegut wrote that before the, the understanding of camera phones. So now camera phones have changed that because, you know, without a camera phone, None of us know who George Floyd is, for yeah, example. I was say that, like, that is his connection, basically. George Floyd is connected because we've made him connected to the, the greater populace yeah. via the cell phone camera. But it would be wrong to pretend that the phenomena of a George Floyd, Matt Arbery, or, or Breonna Taylor, that that's something new. That's been going on forever in America. It's just that now they have a phone. Yeah. And so now those people whose names are lost to history, they have names in the public. They are quote unquote connected because we see the video or have audio or whatever. I think that also ties into like what we talked about at first, the uh, being a crime to be poor in America. And mm -hmm. I feel like um, these two like go hand in hand being it's okay to kill someone if they have no connection. Cause like those people um, like really unfortunately, so aren't really cared about by the general public. And then, so without, I mean, like you're saying, the camera phones and all that, there's just like nothing, the, like us as, um, like the everyday viewer doesn't really know what's going on, especially because I know 
I think it's fair to say like a lot of us are oblivious to it on purpose too, like because we don't want to admit it. Well, that's and that's the thing. Many of us don't know what's going on, but a lot of that is a conscious or an unconscious choice. We've either willfully or unconsciously distanced ourselves as much as we can from that sort of stuff because it's uncomfortable. It's not pleasant right. by any means, and and our brains are hardwired to. You don't walk into unpleasantness. You know, and that, that, that becomes then a moral thing. And if you're conscious of it and you make a moral choice to do so, there you go. But the unconscious thing is to get away from pain or discomfort or, or, or awkwardness or whatever. Um, and so with, you know, poor people being criminalized, poor people not being connected, the, the criminalization of poverty, uh, you know, somebody like George Floyd, George, I mean, George Floyd's thing started up because he was using a counterfeit bill, it's obviously a man who didn't have money and was trying to use fake money to buy something at a store. Uh, and that led to him dying at the hands of the state. Now, all, the focus has been on his death and how he died, which all of which important. Very little focus on that and other cases like it, even in cases where somebody did not die, is why do we have a condition in the first place where somebody like George Floyd needs to use a counterfeit $20 bill so it's only twenty dollars worth of stuff he was trying to buy at most. Why does a man need a counterfeit twenty dollar bill to go to a corner store to get to buy anything? We're very punitive in the United States, which is the, the criminalization of poverty. We never say, "Why do we have such a situation of poverty in America?" It's always us punishing poor people and pointing the finger at them afterwards, or saying this is an individual choice that you've made and things like that. Where it's like. When do we start seeing the pattern of all these individual choices in a row? When you see so many of those, that means it's not individual choices. It's it's systemic. And in America, we don't really try to fix the system. We just try to punish the individuals who fall victim to the system. And that's you know something Kurt Vonnegut would agree with, I think. Do you have any ideas on how do we go about fixing the system? Oh, yeah. Uh, you throw money at it. That's, <laughs> that's usually the easiest, but we don't do that. The, you know, if you want to see what a society values, you look at how society, most notably through its government, spends its money. What a government spends its money on is what it values most. What does our government spend most of its money on? Military. military. The largest portion of our budget is military. It dwarfs every other aspect of our budget. But we spend so much on the military, we actually throw away stuff that costs more money than other aspects of the budget and we spend more in our military than like the next 10 countries combined most of whom are our allies too so it's not like well we have to spend this money because you know times are are crazy out there you know we could go to war in a minute that's no that's not our situation uh those who are involved in spending that money would like to keep like make us think that that's the situation always like have us just that much on edge to justify spending all that money, even though you and I stand almost zero, zero threat of having our mm-hmm. well-being compromised by another country in and of itself. I'm not talking about terrorists and things like that who operate on their own, but actual countries like Russia is not going to do anything to you and me, at least not on American soil. It's not going to happen. China's not going to do anything to us. It's not going to happen. Iran, North Korea are probably not going to harm you and me. Why do we have military bases all over the world, though? Why was I just saw yesterday? You want to see an example of wasteful spending, uh, and uh, also the way the news media portrays this with burying the lead. But the story was about these um, Iran naval ships 
harassing in the Persian Gulf one of our Coast Guard ships. And that was the story. Like these Irani ships getting aggressive with one of our Coast Guard ships, blah, 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 blah. And those damn Iranis, because Iran for 40 years has been a boogeyman that we've always considered around the world. But the lead that was buried was, why is one of our Coast Guard ships in the Persian Gulf? The Coast Guard is supposed to block our coast, mm. guard our coast, yet we have them in the Persian Gulf. Then, then you're not the Coast Guard anymore. You're the Navy. Yeah. But we have Coast Guard ships in the Persian Gulf. That costs a lot of money. Our F-16 fighter jet program is a joke. Like so many of those planes break down. We have to throw them away. And each one of those planes costs over a million dollars. And that's what we spend our money on. We don't even come close to spending that on education, on healthcare, on, on uh, just the jobs programs, et cetera. All these things that poverty is related to, every single one of them, that if you address a lot of those things, it has residual effects on poverty. If you are educated, you are less likely to be poor. Doesn't mean you're 100% insulated from it, but you're less likely to be. If we improve jobs programs, if it's easier to have access to a job, you're obviously less likely to be poor. If we improve health care, you're less likely to be poor as well, because a lot of people go into poverty because of medical debt. That's another thing that it drives a lot of poverty in the United States. The fact that we are the only developed country in the world where you can go into poverty because you got sick or injured. That doesn't happen in Canada. It doesn't happen in Britain or France or Japan. And you have many, many, many people in this country that are poor just because they had the bad luck to have diabetes or their kid got sick or they broke their leg or they decided to have a baby. You know how much money it costs to have a baby in this damn country? It's insane. And so, yeah, if we started addressing all that stuff, it would go a long way toward addressing poverty. It wouldn't completely wipe it out. If you go to France, they have poor people. It's just not the same way we do. And I think like a big issue, um, a lot of people think like addressing these issues would be like a huge tax spike and stuff, but it's, mm-hmm. it's not. It's really just re like redoing the budget of our redoing country. the budget, and also though at the same time, yes, the, the the easiest way to get something shot down is to convince Americans is to raise your taxes, and nothing sours Americans on stuff more than raising taxes. But what most individual Americans fail to understand is it's the saying, a rising tide lifts all boats. Even if you have to pay a little bit more in taxes, in the long run, it's going to benefit everybody because you're going to improve social systems that cost us as a whole so much money to begin with. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's like it will healthcare, for example. Okay, if, if we got universal health care in this country, it would cost me tax money. My taxes would be higher because that that's what would pay for it. But I would rather pay $500 a year more in taxes if it's going to save me on whenever I inevitably get sick, which we're all going to do. We're all going to get sick or injured at some point in our lives. That stuff costs a lot of money. Even after your insurance takes care of it, it doesn't take care of everything. You got to pay for all this extra stuff. I literally have a bill over there that they just emailed me that I was, I'm going to get on the phone with. And it's like uh, my last doctor bill, the last doctor visit, which is covered by my insurance. But then it said, I owe an extra hundred bucks because of COVID protection fees. And I'm like, what? No, I'm not paying more because you had a COVID proof the place. That's on you. That's not on me. Yeah. But that's how our insurance works. 
like ask you ask people to like see their insurance bills for stuff and it's crazy like i i see them on the internet all the time just people like oh my god i just got a bill for thirty five thousand dollars for a surgery that my insurance was supposed to cover so i called my insurance company and said why do i have a thirty thousand dollar bill and they check and they go oh our fault it's actually seventy thousand dollars and stuff like that like and then you wonder why like you can't point at somebody and say that's individual choice it's your fault you're poor and it, but even with other things that we consider individual choices, yeah, if somebody's a drug addict, yes, they chose to do those drugs, but you know, when you can't afford mental health services or things like that, people self-medicate, they abuse substances. That's just going to happen. It's, it's automatic. And if you can get people treatment for that stuff, that doesn't cost more than like a mortgage payment, which it often does, you'd have fewer substance abuse addicts in this country, which also leads to homelessness. And you know, so many of your homeless population is because of drugs, it's drugs and mental illness. Very, very few homeless people are homeless just because it's like, oh man, I'm poor and I can't get a job and now I'm homeless. Like that, that's, that's kind of a myth we think of with a lot of homeless people. It's drug addict and, and people with mental illness. Two things we don't address well enough at all, that, that it, it shouldn't, have to cost somebody with mental illness money to get help for their mental illness because also if you have mental illness you have a harder time getting or keeping a job so how are you supposed to have a job that's going to pay for the treatment for the thing that's preventing you from getting the job yeah. and it's just this vicious cycle if you're a drug addict it's harder to keep a job so how are you going to pay for something to keep the job that you can't get that requires you to pay for the thing and it just, it, that's why if you talk to Europeans and Asians and South Americans and stuff and they, you, you bring this stuff up to them, they're just like gobsmacked. They're like, why do you guys have that system in America? That makes no sense. Why do you do that to people? But we do. Yeah. And I think that kind of goes back to selfishness a little bit because people are willing to pay for their medical insurance because they know that it's just going to them or like their family. And pay more for yeah, it. And they don't want to pay taxes because they're thinking why should I pay for other I'd rather pay a hundred bucks on myself than five bucks for somebody else. It makes no sense. Yeah. For somebody else and myself. Right. <laughs> it makes no sense. But yeah, if you just tell them, oh, the oh, taxes are going to get raised if we do this. Well, the taxes are the cost of living in a society. That's what yeah. we do. Yeah. If, after school programs, if we want to increase them, that's going to, you got to pay for that. And some of that might come out of tax money. Again, it could come out of the damn military budget, but we like, we're allergic to doing that as well. So if you don't do that, then yes, you have to raise taxes, but you have so many Americans that say, don't touch my taxes or also don't take money away from the military, you know, support the troops, red, white, and blue, but we also don't help troops when they come back. Our veteran services are garbage. We don't supply, we actually don't make them safe when they're actually serving. You talk to a lot of veterans, the fact that how many of them are injured or die because of lack of proper armor or armor on their vehicles it's like, what are we spending all this money on then? So, yes, the way we allocate funds in this country is, it's unfortunate. Very unfortunate. Yeah. Do you have anything else to add? No, I'm, Dan, you got anything? All good. Thank you for your time. Yeah, thank you, Mr. Babbo. Thank you, Mr. Babbo. All righty, before we jump in, third and final segment, we'd like to thank Anchor, uh, our last sponsor of the podcast. They're the ones who made this whole thing possible. So Anchor will distribute your podcast for you. So uh, you guys can find this on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, 
uh, Google Podcasts, and many more. I mean, this thing's all over. You can make money from your podcast. Uh, you don't need, like, a minimum listenership. You can, uh, like, we can make money if we wanted to. Don't want to monetize this. We want this free. Uh, we don't want we don't want anything going on. So uh, everything you need to make your podcast all in one place. We're able to all be on the podcast, not have to be in the same room. It's pretty sweet. So download the free Anchor app today or go to anchor.fm to get started. All right. So let's just hop in with our overall review of the book, you know, kind of a wrap-up segment. So who was Billy? Like, to in your point of view, who do you think he was? Do you think he was this main important character as sometimes he seems to be laid out to be? Or just like, uh, you know, like mentally ill war veteran? But, I, I mean, we really <laughs> didn't learn anything too. about him at all. I mean, he never really had any development. He's just kind of there through the whole story, in my opinion. Very true. I think we had some development very early on. Like, I think sometimes I overlook the fact that the first chapter was completely different than everything else. Mm -hmm. And very true. The impact that that kind of had on setting the stage for the rest of the story. Because if that chapter were to come at the end, I would see that maybe differently as Billy being an actually mentally sound person. If that actually was him going house to house, because that the person in the beginning of the book and the person in the next nine chapters are totally to me are two completely completely different different people. Yeah, Yeah. I agree. I mean, uh, I think that Billy, Billy is, uh, I don't know. I think he's just crazy. Yeah, that was, that was my same thought too. I mean, I, you know, because it's a book, I feel like I'm, kind of glorifying his like life i guess but if this were real life i mean i wouldn't see him as i would see him as i don't know i would see him as this war-torn guy who uh is just looking for regular life and keeps having some struggles to get over you know i wouldn't see him as somebody who needs a book written about them yeah it's uh i don't know he's an interesting character and one that is like not very comparable to anything else we've read or at least i've read mm-hmm. yeah i i think i'd agree with that too it was so weird to me that the narrator kept popping up in like scenes with billy every now and then i had no clue what that was about wait can you uh like go into that I don't like know. i remember one specifically he's uh taking a dump when he's at like the war camp and then he's just saying like the narrator just says and i was there to or Billy was talking about the guy in the stall next to him was making a lot of noise, and then the narrator goes, that was me. And it Wait. happened, like, three times throughout the book. The narrator said he was standing next to Billy and stuff like that. Like, I didn't – no idea where that was coming from. That was out of left field. Yeah. <laughs> well, this changes the whole game for me. <laughs> yeah, the narrator was present in a ton of different scenes. It was – or not a ton. It was, like, four, maybe five. Really, I wow. think it – I, I I don't I don't know. I think I skipped over that or something, but I did not put two and two together. Or I guess I just thought it was Billy talking and being weird like like usual. Yeah. Well, uh, that's that's I mean that kind of changes my my whole thing with chapter 1 then. Maybe this was just a story about somebody who he met in the war that he thought was interesting. Could be. Yeah. But it also makes you wonder 
if this narrator is like another person, how does he, he knows, I feel like he gets in the head of Billy sometimes, knows some of his thoughts and all these things that are before and after the war. Yeah. Uh, he could have just made up this false personality for Billy in his mind. Yeah. Just based off a person he knew, but didn't know like that much about. He just made up all these personal life details. Or another thing, I don't know if this is uh, true, but maybe Billy was uh, uh, like a character that was supposed to write O'Hare, the guy he was uh, talking with in the first chapter. Yeah, that's true. I I think that's, yeah, I don't know. (laughs) He's such a weird dude. Like, it's a weird character. Yeah, and, you know, I think because of the uh, controversy this kind of sparks, we talked about this with Mr. Baffo, but, you know, we really just have to admire the concept of free will in this story. And we got into it before, so we don't need to go too far deep into it this segment. But uh, just like the interesting views that they have on it and how we really aren't that as important as we think we are, I guess, right. in a way. right. And then I, I, yeah, and like that goes into the Trail Famidorians, who are obviously a key part to this book or novel, um, and like how they think free will, or like view free will as such an earthly concept, and uh, just a very interesting um, thought process by them, and something that's like really uh, like neat to look at. Yeah. Um. Another thing I was just thinking about as as we were talking about that. A lot of the times when I was um, thinking about the Trophimidorians and their concept of time, I would think about it as the lifespan of one person. But, you know, I forget that there is a lot of time that passes in the world. I mean, humans have been around for, I mean, we don't know how long, but over 2,000 years. So that means there's 2,000 years or more worth of people living at the same time. Well, not at the same time, but they're technically all still alive just in different times that's true and i just thought that was interesting to think about that i was like well yeah more we were like, talking about it before i was basing it off of the timeline of one person's life life but really it's happening for everybody technically true very true yeah they're very uh i don't know very interesting characters like because how they just see whatever moment they want, which would definitely be a cool way to look at life. (laughs) Yeah. So I think we should, uh, can't finish out this podcast without talking about the importance of So It Goes. I mean, it was what we based our entire first podcast off of. And uh, I think it just plays a huge role in the novel. It's very interesting. Anytime the word dead or deceased or death, anything. Or or pain. Something like that. Yeah, so it goes. Just the way it goes. That's just how life works. It's basically what I started uh, or really interpreted that as uh, throughout reading the novel. Yeah. Danny, you have any thoughts on that? Or um, I think John hit it pretty well, not going to lie. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, as let's give – I want to do ratings of the book on a scale from 1 to 10. Oh, yeah. That's a good, uh, it's a good thing. Good ad. I, I'd go, uh, go an eight, solid eight. 
yeah, honestly, this was this was one of my favorite reads of not even just saying this because we're doing a podcast about it, but uh, <laughs> I think it was just an interesting novel. I mean, it kind of dragged down at the end just a little bit. I feel like the last few chapters didn't add as much as they could have, but uh, I think I'll go with solid eight five on this eight point five. I'm gonna go seven six seven six. <laughs> the good number. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely a uh, a solid one. Give it a read for our listeners who haven't uh, who haven't read it. It's definitely worth your while. Um, free audio book on YouTube. Not saying that I used it, but definitely, uh, definitely. Helpful. I endorse it. It was very helpful, <laughs> as well as I. So, yeah. uh, as all things come to an end, so does this podcast, and so it goes. Okay, there it goes. Thank you all for listening. Who knows if this will be uh, brought back? You never know. We'll have to see the feedback, see how the fans react. But uh, thank you all very much. I'm Jonathan. I'm Eddie. I'm Danny. Thank you, guys. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, it's going, no one knows.